It really is a pretty big deal, actually. Uh, many, many free churches uh, do not have credentialed staff. And we have a lot of credentialed staff. So it's a really big deal. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to the book of Proverbs. And we sang a lot about the name of the Lord. And we sang a lot about the awe and the greatness of God. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Let me uh, ask God to guide our time. Father God, as we talk about your names, we talk about your greatness, we talk about our response to who you are and how we ought to live and what we ought to believe. We ask that you would remind us of things known or teach us of things not yet known. And may we respond rightly to your inspired and errant word. Guide us, we ask, in the name of Christ. Amen. There's a compound word that many Bible scholars, theologians use. It's a four-letter word. Shame on a few of you, not that kind of four-letter word. It's quite different than that. I know the, the bad four-letter words. I remember growing up and my parents would teach us to use our mouths wisely to avoid certain four-letter words, as they were called. In fact, uh, I've learned that here in central Wisconsin, a, a few parents might even take a little hot sauce and put it on the tongue of their teenager when they use salty language to remind them not to use spicy language. That didn't happen in my childhood home. In my childhood home, when someone used a four-letter word, they would get ivory soap. There was a lot of ivory soap dispensed in my four-letter house, and my sisters deserved every bit of it. But that's not the four-letter words that we're talking about today. Today we're talking about a word, tetragrammaton. That may be a word you know, it may not be a word you know, but you could break it down, tetra four, grammaton letter, literally the four-letter word for God. It's the most sacred name for God in the Old Testament. We pronounce it Yahweh, but honestly, we're not really sure how to pronounce it. They called it Hashim, the name, or Haharash, Shem Haharash, the sacred or redeemed name. They called it Jehovah. You recognize that last one, Jehovah. It actually isn't in the Bible, though you may have Bibles filled with the word Jehovah. What Jehovah actually is, is something that we got from the Age of Enlightenment and the time of the Renaissance, from the 13th to the 16th century, the five or 6,000 times that the Tetragrammaton 
Yahweh, is used in the Bible, what they did was they took the vowels from another word of God, Adonai, Lord, and they attached it to Yahweh, which became Jehovah. Why would they ever do that? Because nobody knows how to pronounce Yahweh. Understand that in antiquity, we have no example of how to pronounce Yahweh. The points or the vowels have never been given to us. We have no idea what vowels go between the four consonants that make up Yahweh. We throw in a couple, which is how we pronounce it. In the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, they threw in a couple different ones, the vowels from Adonai, and came up with Jehovah. But we don't know how to pronounce the sacred name of God. Not at all. Why? Because they worried. The ancients worried that if we knew how to pronounce God's most sacred name, we would abuse God's most sacred name. They worried that we would use God's most sacred name as a filler in our OMG world. Oh my God, world. That's the world we live in, right? Oh my God, I didn't expect to see you today. I can't believe you did that. Oh my God. How could you do that? That's the world we live in. An OMG world. And the ancients knew that if we knew how to pronounce the most sacred name of God, we might take his most sacred name and use it as a filler or as an act of surprise or in anger. You say, well... That's not that big a deal. It made God's top three in his top ten list. Did it not? Think of Deuteronomy chapter 5, Exodus chapter 20. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, number 3 of the top ten is this. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. We live in an OMG world. We don't understand rightly that names reflect character, they reflect persona, and all of God's sacred names tell us something different about God. And the reason the ancients won't let us know how to pronounce the most sacred name is because they rightly saw that we would saw that we would in vain abuse God's name. And maybe we're here today and already we say, ooh, ooh, this is a pastoral rant, isn't it? But it made God's three out of ten. And maybe we're here today and we say, ooh, I violate this all the time. Well, yesterday is gone, today is new. What would God have us do today, and how would he have us protect his sacred names today, of which there are many in Scripture? 
think about this OMG, oh my God world, we don't say OMD, oh my devil. We don't say OMS, oh my Satan. We don't even say OMB or OMV, which makes a lot of sense to me. Oh my bears, oh my Vikings. I can understand how you would use that as a filler of worthlessness. But we don't do that. We say, OMG. Oh my God. This is a bigger deal than we might think. You shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So the Bible says that rather than take his name in vain, we ought to fear God. That doesn't make any sense in an OMG world. An OMG world just casually uses God's name as a filler, as a curse word, in shock. And the Bible says, fear God doesn't even equate to most of us, to many in our society. Fear God? Do we realize the Bible says that? Well, I do something periodically with my staff. They hate it, by the way. I go around and I say, I've got a question. They all go running. And my question was this. How many times does the Bible say, fear God? Now, I'm just going to tell you, only one of the three licensed guys up here were part of my quiz. I'm not going to tell you which one. You can guess, or if you can give me a dollar after the service, I'll tell you which one. <laughs> that would be fine. But I ask lots of my coworkers, how many times does the Bible tell us to fear God? And more than half of them said lots. <laughs> they played this game with me before, right? I said, that doesn't work. I need a number. And so those who were here that day guessed between 10 times and 150 times. I wonder what you would have guessed. Well, Brennan is probably my only staff member who bothers to read the Bible. Uh, because Brennan said 342 times. It's really close. It's 310 times in the Old and the New Testament we are told to fear God. In other words, this has got to be a rather big deal. But now we need to figure out what does it mean to fear God? I'm going to give you the answer right away. There's four Hebrew words, three dominant and one secondary, and one Greek word. So we have five words. And so the semantic range of fearing God is this. To have dread when we disobey God. To have dread if we disappoint God. To have reverential awe and excitement for who God is and be amazed at that God. And to be overjoyed and joyful, excited about his mercy and his grace, his extravagance. All of that is part of the semantic range of fearing God. 
Dreading God when we sin because God disciplines those whom he loves. Hebrews 12, 6. Dread because we would disappoint God. An awe because of what he has done, who he is, how great he is. And an overjoyed love for his mercy, his grace. All of that is part of fearing the Lord. Now, we've already talked about 310 passages that talk about fearing the Lord. I'm just going to give us a few, all from the book of Proverbs. We could have gone to many books, Old and New Testament. Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, think about knowledge. Knowledge is the accumulation of information. We're told that every five to seven years... Knowledge doubles on this planet every five to seven years. But this isn't that kind of knowledge. This is knowledge of the Word. This is knowledge of God. If we fear God, we pursue what is in this book. If we fear God, we study what is in this book. We want to know more about God. That's the knowledge that comes. If we really want to fear God, we will be in this book. The book goes on. Proverbs 8.13. The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Now think about that. I often think that the country I grew up in is really not the country that I live in today. I remember growing up and even if people did evil, and we all do and did, there was a little bit of shame that we have done the wrong thing. But today we live in a world in which it's actually more shameful in society to do right and to stand up for what is right. And evil is called good, and good is called evil, that's the world we live in. And this says that I need to hate evil. It doesn't say I need to hate evildoers. People matter to God. And therefore people matter to us. It's not about hating evildoers. But it is about hating evil. I need to hate the evil that I do. And the evil that is around me. I need to hate lies. I need to hate bigotry. I need to hate spousal abuse. I need to hate children abuse or senior adult abuse. I need to hate that kind of evil. I need to hate immorality, but I'm not hating those who perpetrate it because people matter to God and therefore they matter to us. But I hate evil. Listen to Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We started out the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now we have the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge is the accumulation of biblical truth. Wisdom is living it out. That's why James says, do not be hearers of the word only, but be doers as well. The more we learn about God, the more knowledge about God we accumulate, Actually, the more culpable before God we are, 
Wisdom is taking the knowledge of God and living it out. Applying it to our hearts. That's what real wisdom looks like. Proverbs 14.26 In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. I'm privileged to have five children, four plus one that married in. And I have a grandbaby, Ray, just out of this world. By the way, my kids think it's right to have taken my grandbaby down to Texas for a little visit. Who gives them the right to do that? <laughs> I, there, there are grandparent rights around here, you know. So I'm in mourning for a little while. Grandbaby's gone. But what I want to teach my grandbaby, what I want to teach my kids more than anything else is the fear of the Lord. More than kicking a ball or getting all A's or how to succeed in business or how to do life, I want to teach them. I want to model how to fear the Lord. That is the number one thing parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, that we need, we must pass on to the next generation. That's fearing the Lord, and we want to pass that on. That dread of disobedience because God disciplines whom he loves, the dread of disappointing God, the awe of who he is, and the joy of a merciful, gracious, extravagant God. That's what it means to fear the Lord. That's what we want the next generation to know, to see in us. 15, verse 16. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. This talks about what do we pursue. Is our number one pursuit more is our number one pursuit materialism? Or is our number one pursuit to fear the Lord? That's a question we all need to ask, probably not once, but regularly. What is the greatest pursuit in our life? Real wisdom pursues the fear of God. That's what God tells us in his word. And then one more, 16.6. By steadfast love and faithful iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. I want to think about that for a moment. By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. I'm not sure how this was instilled in my childhood home. I don't know if it came from the church that we attended. I don't know if it came from my parents or some of the extended family that I have that know the Lord, or, or some individuals, but somewhere along the way, I began to understand that I ought to be more concerned with what God thinks than what my parents think. Think about that. More concerned about what God thinks than what someone else thinks. Somewhere in there, I got Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? If I go to 
the depths of Sheol, you are there. If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I go to the sea, you are there. Where can I flee from your spirit? Nowhere. And that's only part of the fear of God. It's the dread part. But I got to tell you, as a teenager, that kept me from a boatload of bad choices. I made two boatloads of bad choices, but it kept me from a third boatload. Because I understood that God would see, that God would hear, that God would know. And then somewhere later on, I began to think in terms of the awe of God, and then in terms of God being this extravagant, gracious, loving God. And so over time, and over maturity in life, and maturity in Christ, we begin to put parts and parts and parts of the fear of God into our life. We're all projects. We're all works. But we want to add more parts of the fear of God. Not just the dread. Or not just the awe and the reverence. Or not just the extravagance of His grace and mercy. We need all of that to understand what it means to fear the Lord. We want to teach that fear. We want to model that fear to others. How different from an OMG world. An OMG world. I want to illustrate this from the life of Martin Luther. Some of you know Dr. Martin Luther. He was born in the 1490s, the end of the 15th century, ministered mostly in the 16th century. He's the guy that nailed those 95 theses to the Wittenberg church door. But that's not the part I want to talk about. Martin Luther grew up in a blue-collar, working-class house. His father was Hans. His mother was Margaret. Margaret and Hans Luther. We somehow got Luther out of that. Hans worked in the copper coal mine. The copper and coal mines. Eventually he bought some copper mines. He was a hard-working man. His wife Margaret was a very religious woman, but exceptionally off-the-chart stern. And she taught Luther to fear God. I mean, really dread God. Luther tells us, I hated God. Can you imagine that's what the reformer said? I hated God. Well, his father didn't want him to work in the mines. So his father recognized a brilliant mind when he saw it, sent him to the University of Erfurt, and by age 21, Luther had undergraduate, graduate, and law degrees. He was a 21-year-old lawyer. And he was going back from his home to Erfurt to the university again. And he got caught in a storm. And the storm was very fierce. And a lightning bolt struck just a few feet from him. And rather than say, praise you God, you didn't hit me. Luther thought that God had missed and was reloading. <laughs> and so he cried out to the patron saintess. Of the mine, St. Anne. He grew up in the mines, 
That's the patron saintess he cried out to. He said, Saint Anne, save me, I will become a monk. And he was spared. Two weeks later, he enrolled in the Augustinian monastery in Erfurt. And he was an incredible monk. He was the most monkish of all monks, he tells us. That's actually a phrase from him. I didn't make that up. He would sleep in the midst of winter in Germany on the floor without a shirt and without a blanket to punish himself. He would go to the confessional booth for hours on end. Nobody wanted to be on the other side. He would take a whip and he would beat himself and flagellate himself because he expected that that's what God would do. And he hated God. He got one part, maybe barely, if he got it at all, of fear. But it was terror, it was hatred. That's not a part of the fear of God, but that's all he got. And eventually, nobody knows exactly the year, he went to Rome. He went up the Scalia, sank to the Holy Stairs. He's citing Romans 1.17, the just shall live by faith. And he comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then he begins to study the word of God. And his study is what does the fear of God really mean? And he gives us two terms. They're not biblical terms, but they are very helpful terms. He talks about servile fear and filial fear. Listen to how he defines them. Servile fear is the fear of somebody who is in jail and fears the jailer. Now don't think of the 21st century. A jailer in his century was a retired centurion and this was his pension and he is a brute. He beats up prisoners. He murders prisoners. He abuses prisoners. That's the system. And the fear of being at the mercy of that kind of man is servile fear. And that's Martin Luther in his early days towards God. Then filial fear. Filial fear is a fear that a child has for a really good, godly, gracious, gentle father. Filial fear does have a dread when one does something wrong because God disciplines those whom he loves, but has a greater dread to disappoint that kind of father has an awe and a reverence for age and for the father and loves the father dearly and sees the father as extravagant and gracious and merciful. And that's what Martin Luther came to believe, rightly so, that the semantic range of fear means in the Bible. That's what we're told 310 times to have towards God. Yes, dread when we sin. God disciplines those whom he loves. 
And yes, dread of, of causing God's sadness by our actions or our attitudes or thoughts or motives. An awe and a reverence for who this God is. And a joy and appreciation for his grace, his mercy, and his love. That's what it means 310 times to fear the Lord. It's that kind of fear we see in Exodus 1, verse 7 and following. That's when the Hebrew midwives refused partial birth abortion. They say that's a 21st century. No, it's actually in Exodus 1. You remember the command of Pharaoh when the midwife brings forth a child. If the child is a Hebrew boy, kill the child immediately. And what does the text say? Out of fear for God. Not out of fear for Pharaoh. Out of fear for God. Knowing that we are made in the Imago Dei, in the image of God, they refused. Exodus chapter 9, same time period, same era. Moses comes to Pharaoh and he says, we're going to bring plagues upon you. And do you remember the statement that he makes? It is because you do not fear God that these plagues are coming. You don't have a reverential awe for God. You don't appreciate God and love him. And you don't understand that you ought to have a dread in disobedience to God. You don't have any of the spectrum. So out of fear or a lack of fear for God, the plagues are coming upon you. I think of Leviticus chapter 19, 14 to 32. It says that we ought to have the highest regard for the deaf and the blind. That is, those who have a disability, we ought to have the highest regard for out of fear for the Lord. Because they're made in God's image. And rather than being pushed aside, we ought to hold them in high regard and honor out of fear for the Lord. And then it says in 31 and following that you ought to have high regard and honor for the gray head. I think it's actually the gray beard is the real translation. And uh, those uh, whippersnappers that were up here a little bit ago, they need to have high regard for the gray beard out of fear of the Lord. That's what the text says. How about Matthew 10, 28? It says this. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body. How different that is in society. We fear not offending others. We fear not being politically correct. We fear not staying with the party line of whatever political party we're a part of, even if the political party is in great error in certain points or many. We fear one another. Scripture says, fear the one who can destroy the body and the soul. That is, fear God. Rather than look at what society says, look at what God's word says, obey God's word, honor God, Fear God in love, in awe, 
and in dread of disobedience. Fear that kind of God. 2 Corinthians 7.1 Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So because we love God, because we have reverence for God, because we dread disappointing Him or the discipline that will come if we don't obey, we need to live holy lives. That's what it means to fear the Lord. So 310 times in both Testaments, we are told to fear the Lord. And I've got to step back and ask, is that true in my life? Is it true in your life that I have a dread of disappointing God? That I have a fear of the discipline because God disciplines those whom he loves, Hebrews 12, 6? That I have a reverence and an awe for God? Which, by the way, is more than how we dress or whether we run in the hall or not. Reverence is what I look at God's word and it says, and I obey because, because I go to that third category. I love him and he's extravagant and he's merciful and he's gracious. That's what real reverence is. Real reverence is living the way God desires us to live because he's worth it and he's worthy of it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of wisdom and it's hating evil and it's passing it on to the next generation and it's living a God-centered life. 310 times we're commanded to fear the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we pray that if we haven't had great fear before, that we would have great fear now. That filial fear that Luther teaches us about that really captures well the biblical words. Father, yesterday is gone, today is here. If we have some confession and repentance, may we do so, Father. But may we live before you with honor and reverence and awe and joy and love and dread for sin and dread for disappointment of you. Father, may we live in fear of you in the right way. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.